Anglophilia. Oh, why, hello there, fellow Anglophiles, and welcome to another fun-filled episode of Anglophilia. I'm Stephanie Callis. I'm Kaylee McMahon, and today we are going to be talking about The Thick of It. Mm. The Thick of It is a political comedy created by Armando Iannucci, which ran on the BBC for four seasons, consisting of 20 episodes and three hour-long specials between 2005 and 2012. It is a hilarious send-up of government incompetence, corruption, spin, and self-interest, but more broadly, it's just an excellent example of well-observed human behavior set against the backdrop of the fictional cabinet ministry, the Department of Social Affairs, which later gets rebranded as the Department of Social Affairs and Citizenship, or DOSAC for short. Among the colorful cast of characters we follow are the Secretary of State for Social Affairs Hugh Abbott, a bumbling, out-of-touch, empty suit played by Chris Langham, his senior advisor Glenn Cullen, played by James Smith, junior advisor Ollie Reeder, played by Chris Addison, director of communications Terry Coverley, played by Joanna Scanlon, and last but not least, the Prime Minister's scary, sweary enforcer, the ruthless, foul-mouthed Malcolm Tucker, portrayed by Peter Capaldi. In 2007, two hour-long specials significantly expanded the world of the show, and thus the cast. In the interest of keeping this introduction short, I won't list them all here, except to mention that after the specials, Hugh Abbott is replaced as the head of DOSAC by Nicola Murray, played by Rebecca Front. Peter Capaldi, Chris Langham, and Rebecca Front all took home BAFTAs for their performances, and the show itself won the award for Best Situation Comedy. It is sharp as hell, brilliantly incisive, and deliciously cynical. It is laugh-out-loud funny, and I'll be honest, it is a bit difficult to keep up with every detail of the plot and the inside baseballiness of it all when you are suffering from foggy pandemic brain as I have been these last few weeks, but I'm sure that it will merit many repeat viewings in the future when I'm feeling a little more myself. And you know what, having said all that, I still had a blast watching this, despite not currently operating anywhere near my peak mental capacity at the moment. I love this show. <laughs> well said. I loved it too. Good. Yeah, it was funny making a jump from bottom to this because I, I do still feel thought. like bottom is about as complicated as I can follow these days. <laughs> yeah. No, completely. But at the end of the day, I do feel that the point is more following these characters who are all uniquely well maybe not all uniquely horrible but a lot of them are horrible people you know what? Yeah. who well yeah. here's the thing i don't think that they're horrible people i think they're not unambiguously good people i think they're very flawed but they're not horrible as in being 100% evil. I think they're horrible people the way that most of us are horrible people by the standards of, you know, television fiction. Yeah, perhaps horrible is a bit of a leap, but... No, they're not heroes. They're not <laughs> heroes, and when you follow the series from pilot to finale and point A to B, I mean, it, it kind of ends just as cynically as it starts. Yeah, something that, that I wanted to bring up right away in talking about the show is the idea of... Not so much American equivalents, but American shows to contrast it with. And like, of course, I thought of The West Wing. I knew this you This is would. like the perfect anti-West Wing in a way. Like, it's kind of its exact opposite, like the flip side of the coin. Because The West Wing, you know, it's a very earnest political drama. I mean, there's certainly a lot of levity too. And the thing that's similar about it is that it has a lot of the nitty gritty policy details that I don't quite follow as a layperson. But also, we can still appreciate the relationships between the characters and the obvious comedy and the heartfelt speeches and everything. Except that the West Wing is so earnest. And you can tell that these people are all, their hearts are in the right place and they really just want to serve their country and make a difference, goddammit. And here there is none of that. They are all completely only interested in saving their own asses. Like, there's a great moment, I think it's at the beginning of season two, when Malcolm asks Ollie, have you got your eyes on the prize? And he says, yes, I've got my eyes on the prize. And Malcolm says, good. And Ollie says, yep. Yeah, 
but what is the prize? And like, <laughs> none of them really know. And, and I think Malcolm says something like, well, I'll settle for keeping us in power. There's also another example where Glenn and Ollie, they, they have to pitch a new bit of policy about arts and music funding for students. And so like the bad kids, the, the at-risk kids, Ollie's proposal is that they get more funding for arts and music education. And Glenn's proposal is that they get none. <laughs> and then they said, well, so we have to pick one of these. And then they ask Terry, who's the director of communications, who should not be forming policy, say, well, which, which one do you like? And she's like, I'm the one who sells the apples. You guys are the ones who come up with whether it's apples or oranges that we're selling. But like you're pitching two fundamentally diametrically opposed things just to say that you did something, not because you actually care what happens to the teenagers and their arts and music education. I'm glad you're bringing that up because for as obviously as political as this show is, it is also entirely apolitical. Exactly. They don't really name the parties. They only call the opposing party the opposition. You kind of get a vague idea of who might be who kind of sure. toward the end based on a couple proposals that the opposition is dealing with once they rise to power. Yeah. And also kind of by the way people look. <laughs> oh, completely. Peter Mannion is the perfect conservative politician cast. I love Peter Mannion, but Peter Mannion doesn't look unlike Hugh Abbott. I'm thinking more about Adam and Fergus versus Ollie and Glenn. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. they're kind of slicker. But yeah, I do love how it's politics, but it's the dumb side of politics. There's nothing inspiring about it, like you mentioning the West Wing. Yeah. There are no speeches about the people. Yeah. I do like the way that Nicola finally says to Malcolm, you have this male obsession with conflict and you're the reason why people can't stand politics. Mm -hmm. And so it's more about that. It's more about politics influencing the press and the press influencing politics. There's just this kind of circle of, you know, oh, well, you have to resign. Oh, well, you're fired. It's because of what got leaked to the press. Well, what got leaked to the press actually happened. Like, it's this very, you know, kind of scary, snake-eating-its-own-tail kind yes. of thing. But yeah, politics you, and will. also absent politics. Exactly. Oh, really quickly, when it comes to um, American equivalents, the way that this show kind of changes season to season mm -hmm. and how every single episode is kind of about someone fucking someone else over in order to save themselves. Mm -hmm. And there are these, you know, you think two people are kind of friendly, yeah. but then that can change the very next episode. And they're all ready to say, well, I've always hated that motherfucker. <laughs> and then also the way that the characters change never to be seen again, or someone will be really, really key for one season and then you don't see them for another season and a half. I'm thinking about someone like Julius or um, Babely McBaberson, Jamie McDonald. Um, I kind of thought of Game of Thrones and I know, <laughs> okay. I know they are completely different things. One could not be more stylized and just, oh, look at all the, look at the huge budget we have and look at all this crap. And, and then there's yeah. like this, just kind of people running around in like one of two buildings. Mm -hmm. But I did kind of like how Someone can be here today, gone tomorrow, and everybody's ready to kill each other at any moment. <laughs> like... That is so funny. That you... <laughs> I mean, I completely see what you're driving at. That's really great. I do, since you mentioned that obviously this is the exact polar opposite of that in terms of style, I do want to talk about the visual style of the show because this is not a mockumentary. There is in no way a documentary going on behind the scenes in the world of the show, but it does have a sort of very fly-on-the-wall feel. It's shot in a verite style with a handheld camera. There's no music. In that way, it reminds me a lot of The Office or Peep Show even, where you've got these comedies that feel like you 
you are actually just watching real people. Yeah. And unlike The Office, where every single line and word was exactly scripted, this, it always says the episode is written by, you know, a team of writers with additional material by the cast. And I think that they said that something like 80% of what you see on the final cut is stuff that was scripted, but then they also were given permission to play with it and improvise so that it felt more naturalistic. Well, yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Peep Show because Jesse Armstrong Mm -hmm. of Peep Show brilliant writing did have a hand in in this show as well which yeah which you can sense sure i mean just the self-loathing coming from some of these people and the <laughs> the sort of corrigan-esque i'm the worst person in the world oh my goodness a career opportunity i mm-hmm. deserve it like that yeah <laughs> that happens a lot yeah it very much belongs in the tradition of those like early aughts, very naturalistic, very scathingly funny shows that are so honest about whether it's the the inside of the mind of a 20-something male or the inside of the government and what's going Mm -hmm. on behind the scenes. It's wonderful. Well, here's something. Do you have an idea of who the star of this show is at the end of the day? Um, you know, I feel like it... It's gotta be, it's gotta be Peter Capaldi, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's funny because he's such a, he's such like a powerful supporting character for a long time, like Captain Jack Sparrow or something. Like (laughs) when he's, when he's not on screen, you miss him very much. But then he had a very similar trajectory to Captain Jack Sparrow because by the time the fourth movie came out, Jack Sparrow was suddenly the protagonist. Here's how little I've seen those movies. He wasn't the protagonist. I mean, no, he wasn't the protagonist, but was he not the main character? Who was the protagonist in the first movie? Is it Orlando Bloom? Well, yeah, because isn't he? I mean, he's kind of the one that's going on like an adventure and he's being know. You know, dragged around by a dastardly brain dead pirate. Well, cool. And so similarly to uh, your first love, Captain Jack Sparrow, well, I guess your first love is Adam Sandler, but one of your many early loves is Captain Jack Sparrow. (laughs) Clearly you had the hots for Malcolm, yes? Oh my God. I I know you. Malcolm Tucker, a.k.a. Malcolm McDoomy, (laughs) a.k.a. one hot piece of William Wall ass, (laughs) a.k.a. dirty neeps and tatties. A.K.A. the man from glass, go over there and take your pants off. <laughs> A.K.A. Scottish Jesus. This this is the rest of the podcast. It's going to be an hour of Stephanie begging <laughs> Peter Capaldi to come and do her. A Scottish accent. Oh, I, I when, know. I don't know, man, like it, oh, I, I hear it and I'm just, I just like, I hear the pipes and, and I'm just like, oh, oh my God, dude. serenade me take me through a magical walk in the forest and like maybe punch somebody in the face while we're walking oh Uh, my god that man is so verbally abusive oh yeah like he's kind of not a good i don't know i don't like the way he talks to people he is an equal opportunity hater yeah but that doesn't mean that that's a good thing no 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 no, no. (laughs) so yeah he's a spin doctor he's the prime minister's enforcer i think that toward the end of the series they've got a slightly more professional like press something you know he kind of goes by many names but everybody director of communications for number 10 downing street director of communications yeah yeah. whenever he's in the building people freak the fuck out the very first segment of this show opens with someone named cliff Mm -hmm. um who we don't really meet again because he's being forced to resign he's drew barrymore in scream he's drew barrymore in scream he's alerted to the fact that malcolm is in the building Mm -hmm. by terry and he immediately starts freaking out about you know get him some coffee get him fruit get lots of fruit pile of fruit and lots of coffee Mm -hmm. like he's in the building and you know that it's gonna be bad Mm -hmm. but 
I love him and I love how Peter Capaldi himself manages to just kind of do the same thing over and over, but I believe he's a real person. Yeah. He comes in and there's news of some kind, and then there's just a string of verbal attacks that are so creative, mm -hmm. and it's the kind of shit that no one in real life says, but he manages to make it very, very natural. One of the first things we hear him say is he's on the phone to somebody, and we don't know who he's talking about, I don't mm -hmm. think, but he says into the phone, he's as useless as a marzipan dildo, <laughs> but he's saying it in that brogue, and you're like, oh. And you're like, oh. <laughs> oh my god. Dude, uh, it's just my favorite accent in the world. The more garbled, the better. On the topic of the very colorful use of profanity in the show, particularly coming out of Malcolm Tucker's mouth, this show actually had an official swearing consultant. <gasps> Ian Martin was one of the writers, and he was brought on specifically to, you know, construct those, <laughs> those very flowery and specific and unique rants that Malcolm goes on. I mean, we've got to play a clip. I know that if you just go on YouTube and type in Malcolm Tucker, there's a bunch of supercuts of him just laying into people in these really yeah. sexually violent, but still funny ways you breathe a want of this to anyone you mincing fucking cunt and i will tear your fucking skin off i will wear it to your mother's birthday party and i will rub your nuts up and down her leg whilst whistling bohemian fucking rhapsody right where do you think you are in some fucking regency costume drama this is a government department not a fucking Jane fucking Austen novel. I'm under a lot of pressure right now. I'm trying to plug a lot of leaks out. I had my finger in the dike, but the dike's very, very squirty. I've created a vibe. Listen, son, the only fucking vibe you have to worry about is the one that your wife hides in her knicker drawer. I don't need to keep my head down because unlike yourself, I don't give blowjobs to truckers. I won't scare you, okay? I'll just explain to you what I'm going to fucking do to you. I'm going to take your bollocks. I'm going to fucking rip them off. I'm going to fucking paint eyeballs on them. And I'm going to stitch them onto a fucking sock and use that as our mouthpiece. I think he was nominated for four BAFTAs. That's right. And, they finally and won one. at least one of them. Mm -hmm. but did you know Peter Capaldi is also an Academy Award winning filmmaker? I did not. Yeah. Best like original short. Oh, I'm nice. going to have to watch it. Yeah. So, uh, AKA Academy Award winner, put your haggis in my face. Ew! That's gross <laughs> on so many levels. I love haggis. <laughs> I, I literally just meant haggis. That's the most gross level on which it's... Yeah, the literal level is the worst of the levels. I don't no. mind a penis in my face, but haggis. Oh, oh, <laughs> are you kidding? I, I would have haggis Ugh. right now. Haggis and eggs with a tatty scone and tomatoes and baked beans. Oh, my God. Mm. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be culturally insensitive. I should state for our listeners who are Scottish, I am a vegetarian, so I'm just as disgusted by any meat as I would be by that. But no, no. You enjoy your haggis mm. stuff. I'll, I'll exactly. It's not for the meek. Scottish <laughs> I'm, I'm meek. I admit it. <laughs> oh. Anyway, he's, he's dreamy and God damn it, I might watch Doctor Who. Like that's, that's how in <laughs> love I am. I might watch that nerdy ass shit. No that's, offense. Wow. I'll give it a chance. All right, so that's so that's Malcolm. Yeah, I guess he's he's probably the the main character, though. I don't know if he was really intended to be, because as you say, they sort of use him more sparingly in the beginning. Actually, you know what? In that way, thinking about the West Wing again, it's a bit like a President Bartlett figure, because I think that when the West Wing was initially conceived, they were thinking that they just wouldn't show the president at all, kind of like how on this, I don't believe they ever show the prime minister. No. But then it was like, okay, well, we've got Martin Sheen. He'll just like come in. From 
for a scene and it'll be mostly just the behind the scenes of his staff that works for him and they'll be the main focus but then of course like he became a very big part of the show i feel like probably at the beginning it was meant to be hugh is the centerpiece but then obviously when he left uh that could no longer be the case and as i said mm-hmm. it broadened the world beyond just dosak and you get to see the opposition and it kind of toggles back and forth between the party in power and the the opposition party there are several points in the series where i think terry might be the one to verbalize it first but mm-hmm. she says i keep my professional life completely separate from my private life mm-hmm. and that's true for many of these characters throughout the entire series i mean we only see ollie dating women because he's dating women in order to spy on the opposition <laughs> so like yes. we don't we don't know anything about any of these people so so it's hard to call anybody a protagonist i think that you said centerpiece and that's more accurate and as i was brushing my teeth this morning the thought occurred to me that someone could say about the thick of it oh my god the thick of it is great it's really complex and kind of hard to follow and it's all like exposition and someone could also say i hate that show it's hard to follow and all exposition <laughs> like <laughs> Like how someone could say of Bottom that I hate that show. It's just two guys hitting each other with the pan can go either way. No, I guess. Yeah, these two shows sort of represent, again, opposite sides of a different spectrum. I think that it is funny, as you mentioned, that last week we were covering Bottom, which has got to be, and I say this with no disrespect, the dumbest show we've ever covered on this podcast. And this has got to be the smartest show we've ever talked about on this podcast. Right? I mean, is Bottom dumber than Gimme Gimme Gimme? That's a that's a debate for another time. Um, <laughs> okay, so it's one of the two dumbest shows that we've covered on this podcast. I did forget about that show. Um, regardless, we've done it. We've done a complete 180, and we had talked about how Bottom is like the perfect show to be watching during quarantine. And mm-hmm. this, as I said, it does require a lot of attention. I feel like I especially not that I had a hard time following, but I had a harder time following in the post Hugh Abbott episodes. I feel like the first two seasons were so tight and so funny and I always understood what was going on because it was just a smaller world and then once it expands and you start following a lot more people it, it was a little bit harder for me to focus I mean I'll probably rewatch all of this again and I would have rewatched it if we'd had more time and weren't rushing to get this season out to bored people stuck in their homes that's funny I kind of feel like I enjoyed the first two seasons maybe the most but I also found them maybe easier to follow until the specials. Yeah, same. I thought the specials were when I started to go, am I stupid or am I just kind of stretched to capacity because the world's insane? But I did think that the Nicholas season was easiest for me to follow because I felt like we were mostly following Nicola and following this woman. I'd like to talk about her. We can come back to Hugh, but Nicola comes on in the third season and she takes over for Hugh, right? She's the secretary of of Dosak and she comes in and they've done a good job of establishing, not in a ham-fisted way, but they've established like the women aren't taken seriously around here and they often very much should be and they're always called idiotic or they're just plain treated as in the way even though very often they have just as much to contribute as any of these other fuckers. So suddenly there's a woman in charge and she doesn't seem afraid of Malcolm at all in the beginning and even by the end she's more just exhausted by him. But it's so funny because they do a great job 
of pointing out that this poor woman can't get anything right when she has to do an interview or appear on TV or even when it comes to like her wearing the right amount of makeup under heavy lights. And so I loved how there was this contrast between how she acted when she wasn't on camera. She was the most capable, kind of assertive and wonderful, no bullshit person in the room a lot of the time. She could cut through a lot of the bullshit. She was sarcastic and she was fun. But the second she had to do anything, quote, political, she suddenly was the most like unlikable, awkward person. And that was so fascinating to me because, you know, the second the camera would stop rolling on her, she'd be like, oh God, and she would know exactly what she did wrong. I mean, of course, I'm thinking of like motherfucking Hillary Clinton. There is also the thing that Malcolm is freaking out about is that Nicola's husband is tied to some kind of scandal that she doesn't necessarily have anything to do with, but it's going to be her fault in the press. The press is going to know and, you know, you're going to take the fall for it. So yeah, I really, really was always rooting for Nicola. And of course, because this show is cynical, it never really quite worked out for her. But I was always really rooting for her. And so I think that having her show up in the third season, it was easy-ish for me to follow, you know, just what's she going to have to endure this week? This show does an amazing job of portraying the sexism that women in any working environment, but especially in politics face and the, the ridiculous double standards, the way that every little aspect of her is dissected from her hair. Malcolm comes in on her first day and tells her that her dress is too loud. She's wearing just like a kind of delicate floral print. She's not allowed to have a comfortable chair because people don't want their politicians to be comfortable. <laughs> the screen scrutiny that she's subjected to that her male counterparts would never be subjected to. It's disgusting, but it's something that we just so take for granted. Hers is a performance that like, I feel like I didn't even recognize it as a performance because to me, she was just a person more than anybody else. I was I just know. like, oh yeah, that's, that's Nicola. I wasn't even thinking about Rebecca Front, BAFTA winner, which I mean, in mm -hmm. hindsight, makes sense because she fooled me into thinking that she was actually a cabinet minister. You bring up the chair, something that Malcolm is freaking out about in the case of Nicola. This was something that was kind of perplexing to me. One big scandal that she's facing is the fact that she wants to send her daughter to private school. And Malcolm is freaking hemorrhaging over this. Oh my God, you're, you're going to look like such an elitist. And the way that Malcolm is so quick to say you'll have to resign or you'll never recover. I'm kind of going, now, wait a second. <laughs> this is 2020. Uh, people do worse things publicly every single day at the expense of thousands of lives. Sure. Where's the enforcer? <laughs> well. And yeah, I'm definitely comparing this to Trumpian politics. Oh, yeah. And so for as absurd as, as it is to think that this show is being presented as realistic, as lifelike, and you think, you know, wow, someone's, you know, going to be facing massive political backlash because of where she chooses to send her daughter to school. That seems a little heavy handed. But then I try to think like, well, you know, a lot of people have actually resigned from the Trump administration. And in some cases, we don't know quite why. And I can't even remember many of them because oh, there have been entirely ignore. too many. I don't know if he ever even officially assembled an entire cabinet or if half of the positions are just arbitrarily filled by Jared Kushner. Oh God. But when it comes to things that come out about certain people, you kind of go, now why are we? Yeah, well, why are we just accepting that? 
How is that? Uh... <laughs> two, two responses to that. One, there's the very obvious double standard that women will always be held to a higher standard no matter what. But then I think more importantly, in the case of the public school versus private school thing, this is what leads me to believe that they are the more progressive of the two parties, even though they don't explicitly right. state what party they're in. Because, yeah, I mean, if you're conservative, at least in America, sending your kid to a private school, it's not going to be seen as elitist. It's like, oh, it's my right to choose as an American and I believe in vouchers and blah, blah, blah. And the state shouldn't be running schools. But if you're a liberal person, then that does seem a bit hypocritical because we're the ones who are supposed to be promoting the public good and making our public schools as good as possible. So if right. you are not, you know, voting with your child's education and putting your faith into the public system, then that sort of belies your secret belief that, oh, it, we are failing at this. Right. So, I mean, and again, like, at least in this country, I can't speak to the politics over there, but I'm assuming it's the same everywhere. Liberals and conservatives are held to such different standards. I mean, Trump has how many, like, 20-something women who've credibly accused him of rape? Whereas, remember, Al Franken resigned over, like, a nothing thing? I mean... I thought of that. Yeah, we, we crucify our that. own because we're just trying to uphold these impossible moral standards. And, like, I'm not saying that we shouldn't hold ourselves to high standards, my God. But uh, the fact that... I mean, I'll, I'll never not be mad about losing Al Franken. That's, that's a real sore spot for me even now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's Nicola. Yeah, she's... People describe her early on in her season as being smug and, and frumpy and sour-faced and dowdy and just all of these hilarious but, yeah, usually pretty sexist descriptions. But going back to the first couple of seasons, Hugh, I think, might have been my favorite character. He just was so funny. And I wrote the note early on in season one, like, everyone in this cast is perfect, all caps. And I think it was in response to one of his lines that I wrote that because he's just he's so I completely believe him as this inept out of touch politician who just has nothing going on in his head he made me laugh a lot the the pilot is fantastic we meet so Hugh good. and we meet the other kind of main people you know Terry and Glenn and Ollie and Hugh is immediately set up with this incredible failure where he's bragging he says I had a chat with my good friend the Prime Minister of Great Britain <laughs> and everybody reacts like ooh and you you can't tell if they're kissing ass or if they're actually you know super impressed but he brags that he had a conversation with the Prime Minister about a bit of policy and the Prime Minister says this is the kind of thing that we should be doing mm -hmm. and so Hugh says you know we should give this the green light and I should announce this today when I make my appearance at a press conference at a school and it's Terry yes. who kind of suggests like wait well what do you mean we got an official go-ahead and Hugh even says like well that's what he very much implied mm -hmm. and then everybody just follows Hugh and it's Terry, like that more admin kind of person who says, well, there's actually a chain of command thing. We need to talk to the treasury. You're telling me the treasury okayed this. This makes no sense. Then it also gets leaked to the press by Ollie because Hugh instructs him to. And of course, Malcolm hears this on the radio and then calls Hugh and says, you know, what the fuck is this? You can't make this announcement. So you're following Hugh just go back and forth based on what Malcolm says and based on what the Prime Minister says and watching him try to make up what he's going to say instead now that he can't make this announcement. Oh my announcement? god, it's one of my favorite scenes in the car. In the car! What if the announcement is there's no big announcement? Oh, for no, no, wait, right? We say 
the Department of Social Affairs has been doing amazing work, bread and butter work, belt and braces work, the kind of work that you people aren't interested yeah. in because it's not shiny, shiny, media-friendly no, stuff. Right. You're so obsessed with how things play yes. in the media, you sickos, sickos, that every time we try and do, you know, it would just carry on with our day, yep. uh, you don't show up, so we have to call a big, you know, Quiet bread thing and like butter. this. On target, yes. under budget. Coal-faced politics. Coal, absolutely, yes, I like that. Not that's wasting good. resources. No, that's good. Let's do that. Let's, Let's do, do that. that. Let's yes. go for that. We trick them. Yes. We trick them up tinselly thing and they come along and then we say yeah. ah that's yeah. what we've been doing we've been doing our fucking jobs yeah but, and yes they never yeah. print that stuff do they yeah no. yeah and you've come all this way we've got you two hours out of london to come and cover yeah this. you and mugs you mugs but you know what you've got a bigger story here than you have chasing your tinsel yeah which is you live in a country which is properly there's not many countries can say that watching three desperate men of different ages, all on the same page of scared. And and it's all about holding on to this unearned credibility. They're going to lose that, people are going to laugh at them, and then the whole jig is up. And all of this is stupid. Like that, I mean, I was thinking about obviously men in my own office and the way they go back and forth on things and how at the end of the day, they really just need people to believe they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And the second anyone kind of implies, I see you and you don't know what the fuck you're doing, they get very mad. Oh, yeah. Also, just at the end of that press conference, first Hugh comes out and says, well, that was a fucking disaster. But then they're so relieved that the press didn't cover it. And so Glenn and Ollie are just smiling like that was the plan all along. It's like they say, you've managed to create a press conference so boring that none of the press will even touch it. That's genius. And they're all smiles and self-congratulations. And meanwhile, Terry very sternly says, you're very lucky because she realizes what a precarious position they've been in. And she's the only one who ever seems to get ahead of like, oh, this could be a problem in the future. And as a result... They fucking hate her. They, like, plan secret meetings without her. Like, oh, I've booked 14 conference rooms. She'll never find us yeah. here. Like, they actively hide from her. There's a scene where she tries to give some good-natured advice to you, and he says, don't fucking mother me, all right? And she says, I'm not so much mothering. It's just, just trying to help. Yeah, it's I... stomach-churning, but it's also so funny and so spot-on. They establish, based on very much this pilot of Terry being the only one saying, she even says, like, I can see you guys have big hard-ons for this, but I think that we should hold on for a second. And people... People get so mad at her. Glenn even says, like, you can stop it with that smug I knew all along shit. That's not exactly mm -hmm. what he says, but he, he does yeah. say the I knew all along mm -hmm. when she's not being smug. She's mm -hmm. just kind of like, and here we go. And it's very much implied, here we go again. There's another quote when it appears as if Hugh might have to resign. And she's on the phone to someone we're not sure who she's on the phone with. But she says, but it'll be fine in the end. I mean, we'll just get another doomed middle-aged man in on Monday who'll come through the door, stride about a bit, spunk off, and I'll have to mop up the mess. It'll be business as usual. And I mm -hmm. thought about how that's something that is so common in life and also in comedy. Like, we talked about that a lot with Faulty Towers, how, you know, Sybil is constantly having to calm the guests who've been agitated by her husband or you know Polly's having to be the smart one in the room who figures out ways to make everything actually run smoothly in this hotel mm -hmm. it's a thankless job but somebody's got to do oh it oh my god I'm fucking sick of it but yeah they do a good job of kind of making you root for Terry as the secret smart person in the room mm -hmm. and yet I feel like as the series goes on she does kind of appear more bumbling but I don't know if that is what's actually happening or if I have been convinced 
of that based on what other people say about her. That's interesting. Yeah, I do feel like a lot of the characters sort of subtly change from beginning to end. I also feel like you, you had mentioned that no one on this show really is a good person. And I feel like Ollie is kind of a good example of someone who starts off seeming like the young, idealistic least of several evils, but then he's just as, like, ruthless and cynical, just, like, not as seasoned or effective as the others. Yep. In the early episodes, you can see him and Glenn as kind of foils. They're the two advisors to Hugh, and they clearly don't like each other very much, and they're always, like, you know, later on, they're trying to sort of stab each other in the back. It's, like, a fun little rivalry. And, you know, Glenn is obviously much older and much more conservative. Right before the press conference that Hugh gives in the first episode. There's a great little exchange when he's trying to get some of the wording right. And Hugh says, real families are real people. And Glenn says, families. And Ollie says, real people. Family sounds exclusive. You know, it sounds back to basics. It sounds John Major. And Glenn says, people sounds communist. <laughs> and that's so, that's just so perfect. And it also is so fucking true that like the words that a politician uses will be dissected so mercilessly and needlessly but that's something that i think about every time a fucking politician says something about american families i'm like i'm i mean like i i have a family but i don't live with them i don't support them they don't support me except morally like i feel very erased by a lot of political speech and i wish that people would just say people or citizens because it always makes me think of there's actually a line in The Simpsons. Millhouse's parents are getting divorced, and so his dad gets fired from his job at the cracker factory. And then the boss says, crackers are a family food. Maybe single people eat crackers. We don't know. Frankly, we don't want to know. It's a market we can do without. And that's how I feel every time I watch a political debate. Oh my god. Ollie. Okay, so he's he's the youngest person in the room, mm -hmm. we assume. They they never say his age, do they? No, but, he's, but he looks yeah, he's, young. He's the... What did you think? Was he your type or no? Stephanie, we've been friends for 18 years. That's... <laughs> are you honestly... Well, it's just that you haven't mentioned you... it, and I was just making sure. Are you honestly asking me, Stephanie, if I fancy a tall, lanky, bespectacled, baby-faced Brit with good hair? Is that a serious okay. question you're asking, or was it rhetorical? Because I think you know the answer. I am merely asking the question because at the very top, I was able to go on a long rant about walking through the highlands with Malcolm Tucker... And well, um, you did I think not that, then say, yeah. <laughs> I think that my my passion for Chris Addison is less than yours for Peter Capaldi, but uh, it's one of those things where like out of sight, out of mind, but while I'm watching, oh, oh, hell yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, he's adorable. He's so um, he's, adorable. He's no, adorable. And he could be 19. He could be our age. I, I, I You that. don't No, I looked it up. Know. He was fucking 33 in the first season. And I'm in like, okay. the first okay. season? Yeah, like oh, he was definitely baby. in like his late 30s by the time In the Loop came around or by the time it's the last episode. But I'm like, you're ageless. Somewhere in his attic, that man has a post-pubescent portrait of himself. Like he just, oh he's God. eternally youthful and I love it. So in the beginning, as you're saying, he is a bit more, I don't even want to say idealistic. He's just a bit more up to date. Yeah. But by the end... It's kind of become clear that he's become a bit more ruthless and Malcolm makes an incredible speech about how, you know, if you want my job, this job becomes your life. I am merely a host for this job. And Ollie's saying, you know, it doesn't have to be that bad you know you don't actually have to be doing this thing 24 hours a day there's technology now and there are algorithms and malcolm's like oh you just you just wait this is gonna take over your life completely i don't just take this fucking job home you know 
I take this job home, it fucking ties me to the bed, and it fucking fucks me from arsehole to breakfast. Then it wakes me up in the morning with a cup full of piss slung in my face, slaps me about the chops to make sure I'm awake enough so it can kick me in the fucking bollocks. This job has taken me in every hole in my fucking body. Malcolm is gone. You can't know Malcolm, cos Malcolm is not here. Malcolm fucking left the building fucking years ago. This is a fucking husk. I am a fucking host for this fucking job. Do you want this job? Yes. Yes, you do fucking want this job. Then you're gonna have to fucking swallow this whole fucking life and let it grow inside you like a parasite. Getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it fucking eats your insides alive and it stares out of your eyes and tells you what to do. Malcolm, this sounds like the fucking video you leave on YouTube after you've blown your brains out. But you can even kind of see that happening somewhat early on, because even just by season two, Ollie's dating Emma at the opposition, and you kind of can't tell if he actually wants to do that. A lot of it is because Malcolm yeah. told him to. Like, maybe they organically got together, I think, but then he got back with Emma because Malcolm said, we need you on the inside. Mm -hmm. And so you see him at this flat with Emma and um, her co-worker, is his name Paul or Phil? Phil. I, know, I can't. Fuck off, Phil. Phil. Fuck Phil. <laughs> I fucking Phil hate so Phil. I fucking hate Phil so much. I love him. Oh, no, he's but you see him at home putting in, you know, all this time with Emma and Phil and you think, oh God, it's, this is creepy. Yeah. Like, are you really only there to spy or what? Yeah. And so then by the end, by the time Malcolm's telling him, like, you know, this job is going to be your whole life, you kind of go, well, yeah, it is no surprise, yeah. but Ollie's obviously game to yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah. From very early on, on. On the topic of Malcolm saying the thing about how this job becomes your whole life and how you don't really know very much about the personal lives of many people, except that obviously we hear about Nicola's and Hugh's respective families and, you know, children and spouses and everything. Um, Malcolm does wear a wedding ring. Which... At one point he does, yeah. Wait, only at one point. Does it does it disappear at some point? Because I didn't make a note of that, but um, I remember noticing it and going, what, really? I noticed it too, but I kind of feel like by the end it's gone. Okay. And... And I mean, that would make sense. I was trying to pay attention this morning, too, while I was watching the pilot. I didn't get a close enough look, but mm -hmm. I don't know exactly when it appears either. And so it's one of those things. Maybe he had a marriage that fell apart, or maybe it was just a continuity error. <laughs> maybe, um, yeah. <laughs> no, maybe he did have a marriage fall apart. Maybe he's, uh, maybe he's Leo McGarry's evil twin. Uh, make another West Wing reference. Got it, got it, got it. I mean, we do see him at home at one point, making like a wonderful Indian dinner for a bunch of yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was always really weird to see people at home or outside of their work garb. I remember it was really jarring. Like, even early on when they're still in the office but like it's a middle of the night thing where they're all called into the office and like Ollie's just wearing a sweater and it's like you look even more like a schoolboy than you do when you're in a suit. Yeah 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 yeah. No I liked that. We were probably supposed to feel that way like uh no you're you don't yeah. have a life. You're supposed no, to be it's here. True. Well yeah I mean Malcolm's not wrong when we say that we don't want to think of our politicians as people and we don't want them to be comfortable. Hugh also has a great line when there's some controversy about how he keeps a flat in London even though he lives within commuting distance and so his flat is empty and because of the new housing bill that their party is supporting it's this big controversy and so Hugh says they should just clone ministers you know so we're born at 55 with no past and no flats and no genitals. And it's so true. We 
we scrutinize politicians. And like, I think that we certainly should. There are, you know, definite moral concerns and conflicts of interest. Again, thinking of present day American politics, we should maybe vet people a fuck of a lot more than we do. Uh, or, you know, when we find things that are indisputable, we should maybe, uh, you know, think of them as disqualifying and take them to heart. Uh, but there is, I mean, remember Obama's tan suit? People will find anything to Do pick I remember Barack Obama in that tan suit? <laughs> yes. Of course. And, and I, mm. I share your views. But we'll get to Fleabag next week. But, um, <laughs> but you know, anybody on the opposing side or even concerned people within your party will always find something. They'll latch on to anything to blow it up into a scandal. I wish that we could somehow stop that and only focus on what actually matters. Like, the personal is political. I'm not going to deny that. And there are times when, yeah, certain things are morally disqualifying or they are somehow relevant to the actual issues at hand. But, like... Uh, yeah. Right. I don't know. But Barack I don't know. Obama and Joe Biden going out for burgers and Barack asking the guy behind the counter, do you have Dijon, should not have been then reported by Sean Hannity. Ugh. Remember that? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, and remember, um, I think it was even in the first election cycle, like before, what, when he was just Senator Obama, before he was President Obama, when, uh, when he and Michelle did that cute little fist bump thing. And I remember on Fox News, it was like, Terrorists. a bump, a pound, a terrorist fist jab. My dad and I would make fun of that. He would ask me for a terrorist fist jab. What the fuck is a terrorist fist jab? It sounds it's dirty. Just a, it's just this. It's just a fist no, bump. No, I know that. Yeah. It's a fist bump. It just I, They're trying to paint him as a terrorist because, you know, he was non-white and his middle name was Hussein and they just wanted to other him. And it fucking didn't work, thank God. A terrorist fist bump. Terrorist you know, fist jab. Jab. Oh right, Ter it's violent. Word. Meanwhile, we've got white women Sieg Heiling at the fucking you know conservative fuck orgy of the whiteies. Yeah, I think I think I meant the convention. Wow, <laughs> I like fuck orgy of the whiteies. It's <laughs> great. You know what? Okay, since you mentioned white people, um, obviously this is a very not diverse show. And oh, that yeah. makes perfect sense because government is, you know, notoriously underrepresentative of its diverse population. There's barely any women and they're all white. And then I think the first time that we see a person of color is when we see a maid who is trying to clean up yes. during a meeting and then gets bullied and berated by people. And then she gives Malcolm an earful and he, it's the only time that you see him speechless and afraid to stand up. And I was like, that's, that's fucking interesting. That's an amazing dynamic and it was so, it was so fascinating to see that. Yeah, she's like, how long are you guys going to be here? I need to clean. I Like, mm -hmm. they're completely not thinking about the fact that they are messing with someone else's very precious schedule mm -hmm. when they're like, well, it's an all-nighter and we're just going to kind of jack each other off and make things up. They're not thinking about how she has to stick to a schedule. But yeah, I love that Ben Swain, mm -hmm. who's a dick, yeah. starts kind of being a dick to her. And yeah, I mean, it's probably mostly motivated by oh, we can't have it getting out that someone in our party was openly racist toward this person. Mm -hmm. But still, yeah, that's bad. And he, yeah. he takes her outside. And I love the way she says to him, like, don't talk that way to me. I don't like it when you talk down to me. Yeah. And he shuts the fuck up. Mm -hmm. I mean, watching this, it made me just think about, because that did cross my mind, because I think that when she appeared, I wrote, oh my God, a, a black person. But it kind of gave me pause because, you know, it's one thing to have a work of fiction like this 
But to have it be so purposely hyper-realistic that you go, well, this is, this is British politics, everyone here is white, and we are going to highlight every single inept thing they do, and it's going to be hyper-realistic, that is absolutely what we're intentionally going for. Right. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. But when you have any other work of fiction, mm -hmm. and it's like, what do you mean? It's just a show about two guys. Yeah. Guys are white. That's when I go. Guys are break. white. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it sounds so stupid when you put it like that, but, it, you know, the fact that, like, white cis man is, like, baseline person, mm -hmm. that's when we can all fucking do better. Because I don't like the idea that something like this that was clearly so meticulously written and cast and directed, unfortunately, you know, falls into the category of show starring predominantly you know, white dudes. Yeah. But when it's meant to be satirical and making fun of our fucked up real life, that's one thing. But it's all the other works of fiction where we can definitely do a bit better. You're totally right. And you bringing that up about how when you're trying to make a comedic but realistic portrayal of a predominantly white and male world, it actually brings to mind another American show that I thought of a lot during this, which is Silicon Valley. I thought of that too! Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, I mean, that's another one where, you know, there's like one token woman there's one asian cast member and then everybody else is just like a skinny nerdy white dude <laughs> and you know it would have felt very forced and disingenuous to have it be like a rainbow of people and an equal gender split because that's not the world that they're talking about obviously right but i thought about silicon valley because um so to me the first season of silicon valley is perfect and then they lose who i thought was their funniest cast member and replace him with a woman which is fine and i love the woman that they replaced him with but then the rest of the series i don't know if it's because they lost that cast member and then they had to pivot the plot slightly or whether it's just a result of the show going on for a little bit longer like the tone obviously changes but the rest of the series is just a little bit less character based a little bit less funny and a lot more stressful I found like now I can rewatch it and it's fine and I still have a fun time seeing it but I remember at the time that seasons two through what six or seven however many there were were airing I would feel like they were just a lot more plot focused and like I, I got this sort of anxiety watching them because it became like oh god how are things going to be messed up for the future of their company now hmm. so in this case like you know, in that case, they lost one of their cast members because he died, unfortunately. But in this case, yeah. they, they lost a guy who played Hugh Abbott because, um, I guess I, I was going to bring this up at some point, but he was uh, busted for... Wait, what? <sighs> he was arrested because he was found in possession of child pornography. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. It's, um... Okay. It's... I here I am going like, but 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 where's Hugh? I love Hugh because suddenly he's just not in the specials. Yeah. And they're like, well, Hugh's away. And I figured he was fucking, I don't know, dude, an episode of Coronation Street or some shit. <laughs> no. Yeah. I feel bad giving so much praise to his performance because it's just such a monstrous thing that he did. But like, he is so funny and it's really hard not to have that kind of taint the early seasons. And I, But I still... I still think that the Hugh Abbott seasons are my favorite seasons of this show. I feel, I feel weird. Okay, about it. child pornography. I know. It's how are people still doing that now? You know, oh, okay. we should know better. I mean, that's disgusting. I mean, first of all, by your face, I could tell that you were about to tell me something terrible about him. Yeah, and 
it's so unfortunate how when it comes to like revealing a, a crime committed by a certain type of like older white dude mm-hmm. like I just kind of knew you weren't gonna say that he killed someone I kind of knew that you were gonna tell me it was some sort of sick sex thing yeah yeah so that's number one what the fuck does that say about y'all mm. number two child pornography like that th- that is something we shouldn't even really be talking about it but i i the point is i have said and done some comparatively gross things but i cannot compute what actual child pornographic images are that's, How about that? That's, that's I don't even good. know what they are. That's that's very good. Um, you know, it's it's fine. I mean, it's this topic is not funny, but it is funny that I remember when we were skyping just the other week. You were talking about how our mutual friend Melanie had like texted you a little picture of her two year old son naked by a pool, and and you were <laughs> yes. feeling a little bit weird and creepy about it. Like this is a person, and I just like have a two year old baby dick on my phone. Like what if like not you're not gonna get in trouble for that. That's not pornography. Obviously, we all have pictures of ourselves in the bath from when we were kids or like on a bearskin rug or whatever but that's I haven't obviously I've never looked for child pornography but I do remember no I'm never going to obviously but I do remember reading an article years ago and I you know it's again this isn't even something that I'm comfortable googling to find it but somebody on Facebook shared an interesting article about like a support group for pedophiles who like didn't want to be pedophiles like non-practicing pedophiles who because you know pedophilia it's an orientation that you can't help. Sure. But if you act on that, then you are committing not just a crime, but, you know, a, a monstrous, immoral act. So Correct. I thought that it was like there, there was something noble about these people trying to better themselves and not endanger children. But one of the people that the article followed had his moment of realization that he didn't want to do this anymore was um, there was like a picture that he saw that was like you could see just the terror in like this two-year-old boy's face like some of them like actually show really graphic images of abuse and sadism and sex acts with adults like it's it's really horrifying in fact oh god like i i found out the thing about child pornography last week and was like oh god gross and then today again as i was putting together my introduction i looked at the the wikipedia article on chris langham again and i just noticed something that i hadn't noticed before which was he was arrested for level five child pornography and i was like level five i don't even know what that means but level five sounds like that's the top level and sure enough it is it's like sadism it's oh, really, oh really God, bad. Fucker. Yeah, no, it's really. Oh, maybe I should get this. This conversation took a dark turn, and I wish that it didn't have to because, I, I think it's. Ugh. It just sucks that this conversation even has to happen. That the show has to be tainted when people do horrible things. Dude, why level five? I don't know, man. Not that there's a, a good sp- level, but that's the worst. That's a very bad level. No. Yeah. Why you got a level five? I mean, like, cause that's like traceable. It's on your computer. Yeah, I know. That's the it's, other thing is that, like, if you know that you have, a like, a sick fantasy or orientation or something, like, again, it's kind of like, it sort of relates to what we were talking about with Bottom and how it's so great that, like, you, they had to use their imagination back in the day for porn. Like, if you know that you are attracted to children, like, that's really fucked up. But, like, just fantasize. Nobody can read your thoughts. We haven't reached the, you know, future of the thought police yet. Just... I don't know. Like, I, I just can't imagine the the audacity of, like, actually searching for really violent images of kids. It's so, it's so fucked up and it's so horrible to the victims and everything. But again, just like, just as like a stupid criminal thing, like as a self-preservation instinct, if you know that you like kids, why can't you just like, I mean, I don't like kids. I want to preface that by saying, but like, you know, 
you and I have talked about how there are a lot of non-porn things that we've masturbated to. If it's like, oh, that actor's kind of sexy in that commercial. Oh, this movie scene is quite thrilling. Like, I don't know, just like put on an episode of Little Rascals or something and go nuts. Nobody needs to know. <laughs> like, just... <laughs> With apologies to the little rascals, I'm sure they're all long dead by now, but you know what I mean. No, bro, I I watched um, the Little Rascals movie Uh, in the very early days of quarantine. That movie is nuts. Why? Why did I watch it? Yeah, no offense. I mean, did you not watch it growing up? I grew up on the show and I really loved the show and I thought that the movie was garbage. Okay, I had never seen the show. I remember watching the movie a lot as a kid and not being sure what the fuck was really happening. But a lot of it just kind of sunk in. Like, the, we got a dollar, we got a dollar, we got a dollar, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> like, just just things that I still, like, recall. Wow. And so I thought, well, when the fuck else am I going to, like, watch The Little Rascals? That movie is nuts. But, oh, God, this is going to be so tainted based on what you just said. I'm sorry. <laughs> because, like, watching the movie, I was going, I don't know who the audience for this film is supposed to be. Oh, God. Perverts? Because they're misogynists. They're the He-Man haters. And one the of Republican the little kids party. tells a story... Yeah, one of the little kids tells a story about how a little neighborhood girl on his street came over because she wanted to play. And they all go, ew, you know, what, what'd you do to get rid of her? And he says, I whipped out my lizard. What the fuck is this? And then he pulls, like, his pet lizard out of his pocket. Oh, wow. And I just thought, that's a joke about a little boy whipping his dick out in front of a little girl? Jesus Ugh. Christ. But, like, also, the slick, like, rich kid who steals Darla away from Alfalfa is such a creepy dude and he's a dick. I'm watching it. I'm like, this kid's going to grow up to vote for Trump. You can just tell this kid's going to grow up to vote for Trump. And then at the end, during the drag race race, the rich kid calls his dad and the dad is Donald Trump. No! No, is it really, though? Oh, God, no, he's already ruined America, that one episode of Sex and the City, Home Alone 2, which is by far the best Home Alone film in that franchise. And Agreed. now The Little Rascals, which I admittedly I didn't care about before, but God damn it, is nothing well, sacred. Like, toward, toward the end, like during the credits, they play a two-second clip of each cast member as they're displaying the credits. And, you know, there's a brief appearance by Whoopi Goldberg. There's a brief appearance by Mel Brooks. And then they get to Donald Trump. And so there's just like a little two second outtake. And this motherfucker is sitting in like some bleachers, like some wooden stands. And there are extras all over him. He's supposed to be watching this race in a crowd and he's chewing on something and he just spits it out. And he's like, that was bad popcorn. But he just spits it out. And there are background actors sitting in front of him. That this, this child molester. Yeah, oh. Fucking Donald Trump. Oh my god. There I said it. Yeah. Okay. Wow. There's there's a lot there's a lot of directions that the conversation could go in from here. Since you mentioned Trump, obviously everything reminds me of Trump these days. All roads lead to fucking Trump, and of course a political satire is going to definitely make me think of him a lot. There's a great quote in the first episode where Hugh says, I'm not quite sure what level of reality I'm supposed to be operating on. And I was like, this quote describes everything about the Trump administration. It describes how he feels at all times and how he's clearly operating. It describes how all of the citizens, how all of the press have to, I mean, there's also a moment in the first episode when Angela Heaney, who's Ollie's ex who works at 
the standard, threatens to do a story about their day of spin because she's been humiliated at her work for flip-flopping on the story and bringing three directly contradictory pieces to her boss in the same day. And so Holly's very gently trying to talk her out of doing so, and then Malcolm comes in and directly threatens her and has this quote. I know why she shouldn't, because, you know, if she did that, she'd be dead to me, to this department, to the government, and she'd never get another story or a fucking whiff of a story so long as she kept her sorry hack bitch face lingering around Westminster because I would call every editor I know, which obviously that's all of them, and I'd tell them to gouge her name out of their address books so she'd never even get a job on hospital radio where the sad sack belongs. And that just makes me think of everybody having to appease this fucking boy king in order to have access. Like, there was that journalist, he says something like, what would you say to Americans who are scared right now? And he says, I'd, I'd say that you're a terrible journalist and that's a very nasty question. Everybody's having to walk on eggshells and just asking a direct question can get you fucking banned from being inside the room. Like, how is that the level of reality that we're all having to operate on right now? I'm so glad you brought that quote up because I wrote it down and then I wrote equals Trumpian. Thousand percent. Because we've got a motherfucker asking why we can't just inject bleach into our veins. Oh, he can. But the very next quote I wrote down that I wrote equals Trumpian and like wrote in all caps, which is how I know I'm very passionate, after Hugh has improvised his way through this press conference where he was supposed to announce something and then Malcolm said, you can't announce that. The line now from Malcolm is, actually, the PM is in for it. Just pretend that you did <laughs> announce it. Yes. And so he was saying, like, but I didn't. And there's proof because everybody was recording it. And Malcolm <laughs> says, fuck him. And then that's when Hughes says, I'm not sure what uh, level of reality. Hughes then telling everybody, you know, like Ollie and Glenn and Terry, the line is now... I did announce what's called the Snooper Force. I did announce the Snooper Force this afternoon at the school. So now you have to tell the media in case they missed it. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like we've been living in that level of reality for years. Oh, yeah. It's like the courtroom scene in Alice in Wonderland, yes. but every day. No, you're so right. There's another couple of great quotes from that pilot where Hugh is on the phone with a journalist or someone and says, I didn't say we weren't doing it, which is as good as saying that we were. That's perfect. And then also... Malcolm is talking to Hugh about the way that this works, and he says, I tell them that you said it. They believe that you said it. They don't really believe you said it. They know that you never said it. Right. But it's in their interest to say that you said it. Because if they don't say that you said it, they're not going to get what you say tomorrow or the next day when I decide to tell them what it is you're saying. It's such a good puppet master philosophy. <laughs> it's so crazy. I know. But, like, as oh I said, we're God. going to see... Trump in this and like in our nightmares forever like it, everything seems eternally relevant right now but like this is something that obviously predates Trump's presidency and this is how things have been for ages obviously I'm seeing a lot of relevance now but it's nothing new it's all been going on for decades if not centuries and now it's just all completely laid bare for all to see this is true there's no more denying it what pisses me off though is similarly to if you are the kind of sick idiot who goes looking on the internet for child porn thus creating a digital trail i kind of feel like you watch this and you see malcolm and malcolm has to kind of make a lot of stupid ideas sound like they're the only option mm -hmm. and so you kind of it's a chicken and egg it's like well is malcolm stupid or is the game stupid and he's very good at it and mm. so therefore he has to endorse a lot of stupid ideas right but malcolm forms complete sentences and he's not a nazi 
and he doesn't actually press for members of government to appear mean to the press, at least not in public when there are cameras present. So there is a level of intelligence there in this fictional character that is not there in someone like a Sarah Huckabee Sanders oh, or sure. the guy that Melissa McCarthy played and whose name I forget because he... Spicy, Sean Spicer. He hid in some bushes. Like... <laughs> Although, Sean Spicer hiding in the bushes is kind of like Peter Mannion <laughs> playing on the slide in order oh to get God. cell reception. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Oh, yeah. so, so funny. Another Hugh quote. He's going on this visit to this factory. There's this great quote that just perfectly encapsulates the contempt that people have for their constituents. Sometimes, I, you know, when you meet the real, the actual people, I mean, just look at this beady eyes and mean mouths sort of sneering and I mean I know this is what they think people like me think so I hate thinking it but I, I just find myself thinking they're they're from a different fucking species you know with their t-shirts and weird trousers and tables and yeah. why do they wear clothes with writing on them and why are they so fucking fat? I know, and stupid. It's such a great <laughs> quote. It's delivered so straight and so flatly. And it's perfectly accurate for both how many people in government feel about their constituents, but also, and this is where I recognize some hypocrisy on my own part, for how I, a private citizen, feel about many of my fellow citizens with opposing viewpoints. Like, that's yeah. how I feel about the people who are holding quote-unquote protests, i.e. terrorist rallies, storming state capitals with military-grade assault weapons in order to have the right to open up the economy and kill people with this fucking virus. I harbor a lot of contempt for them. I want to be forgiving and, and nice, but fuck it, I'm not. <laughs> uh, the thing about this virus is that you'd think that there would be a bottom line as far as like, no, you can't politicize this because this is a matter of actual life and death yeah. and it's indiscriminate. Of course, there are certain groups of people who are more likely to have access to a house they don't have to leave. And like, that's that's political. Yeah. But as far as like, I'm not going to wear a mask because I'm an American and I'm free. Ugh. To quote a movie that I think is a bit overrated, dare I say it, The Princess Bride. <gasps> Wait, I think that movie is overrated too. Have you we do not. talked about this? Oh my god. <laughs> Finally, a kindred spirit. Okay. I know one other person who thinks that that movie is wildly overrated. Everybody else I know fucking worships it. Like it's the be all end all of screenwriting. As, it ain't. as if it's like quotable. It, Wallace Shawn saying inconceivable. Okay, what else you got? I don't get it. There was one quote in that movie that I actually do think is very quotable and applicable to a lot of scenarios, which is, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. That's the one, that's the one golden nugget. <laughs> I was about to quote that. I was oh about God. to quote that because oh, that is what, that's what I think about when people just like throw out the term freedom when it comes to absolutely oh, yeah. goddamn anything. A thousand percent, yeah. I, I always say that about like empowerment like oh it's empowering to to get a brazilian wax and then go like to a pole dancing class like i mean I, again i guess i'm stepping into some sticky territory here but but you know what i mean like that's not what empowering means 
if it's your choice and you're having fun, that's fine, but that doesn't empower women. Right. But I mean, you did see Hustlers, which is a better movie than Princess Bride. And yeah. watching JLo do that pole dance, I kind of went, oh shit, I wish I could do that. That must feel empowering because you look like the strongest athlete to ever live. Plus I have a hard on. Well, okay, fair enough. Maybe pole dancing was not the right, was not the right example, but I just, I feel like there's a lot of People misuse that word. That's like my most hated word. Well, you know, it's kind of like the conversation we were having with our friend Marcella last night about something like self-care, mm, yeah. you know, and how there's this pressure to consider indulging yourself or treating yourself. Oh, that's self-care. And then you're kind of like, well, how come I don't feel better about my life? I ate chocolate cake and I enjoyed it. And we had to have the discussion about like, sometimes self-care is cleaning your kitchen floor because you've been meeting to for weeks and then you wake up and go, I owe this to myself. Yes, yes. Self-indulgence, <laughs> I think, has sort of co-opted the concept of self-care. And a lot of that is, like, consumerist and, like, buy yourself this. You deserve to treat yourself, girl. And, like, that's that's fine. You do deserve to treat yourself, girl, sometimes. But I think of self-care as being more like future self-care. I'm caring for my future self by working out so that my muscles aren't sore from atrophying from not going outside for two fucking months as of tomorrow. Going to your OBGYN for your annual exam is better self-care than shoving a jade egg up your cooch. <laughs> hey man, it's empowering. Don't knock it. <laughs> <Ooh. scene>. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> What were we talking about before we got? We were talking about the Hugh and Glenn comments about how stupid and fat everybody Have is. Have talked about Glenn yet, really? No, you know, I, we've talked about this already. I like how everybody is either going to bring you a cup of tea because they want to bring you a cup of tea, mm. or they are going to push you into the middle of the road because they want you to be hit by a bus. <laughs> and Glenn <laughs> is such a sweet looking, like, sincere older man, like one minute, and the next you're like, like, oh god, you're evil. So I like that they resisted to the temptation to have someone like him just be kind of the sweet old guy that no one can say a bad thing about. Yeah. He's he's a you know, a scheming, yeah. oh, you know, completely. conniving guy. I've never yeah. I've never thought that he was sweet. I mean, because very early on you set him up that he's sort of more the old guard and saying that people sounds communist. Like he's he's definitely got a lot of very old fashioned ideas, but he's so funny. That actor is so brilliant and then there was this one line that I wrote down that was so perfect because he plays it so straight and the delivery is so sincere and also just the style of the show is so different from like if you were doing this as a sitcom with a live studio audience Hugh asks him how long has it been since you had sex and he says that is between me and my internet service provider and like you can totally see someone like quipping that sarcastically in front of an audience that goes ooh, and like it would be so cheesy and stupid but the fact that it comes out of the mouth of fucking glenn cullen made me cackle that's so good I know. He's he's wonderful. He also sort of, I mean, I know that he's not necessarily politically conservative compared to some other characters that we meet later on in the series, but, you know, he's, he's like a sort of more conservative person. And there's this line in episode two where they have reached out to a woman from a focus group who's like supposed to be really legendary because she's always like spot on and like in touch with middle England and very much like in step with the mind of the voter. So they reach out to this one woman and do a one woman focus group with 
with her to run this policy by her. And then they find out later that she is an actress and they're afraid that it's going to be this big scandal and it's going to be leaked to the press. They're all panicking and Glenn says, we've been lied to. We were abused. We are the victims of abuse. And that just makes me think of like all those fucking, you know, talk radio and middle-aged white man, like Fox News hosts and politicians who think that they're victims of witch hunts. Yes. They don't seem to understand the historical concept of what a witch hunt is or thinking that being forced to take time out of your showbiz career for a month without ever apologizing or facing jail time in exchange for abusing dozens of women that's abuse i'm a victim it's like oh yes that that full persecution complex that so many like specifically conservative but also just generally you know usually older white male people who don't really understand what it means to be a victim in any structural capacity oh it's mm-hmm. just mwah, so perfect. Yeah, the selfishness that runs through all of these people that they they don't try to hide. Mm-hmm. That's another thing that makes them funny. We're all we're all selfish. We're all liars. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we can take any number of quote-unquote bad characteristics and apply them to the best people, but people with more intact moral compasses at least have the decency of trying to hide when they're being selfish or, <laughs> yeah. you know, when they're lying. And in season two, there's this arc where Terry is away for a bit because her father has suffered a stroke. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that Hugh is going to stop bothering her whenever he needs her and so there's this episode where Hugh learns that the prime minister's wife was not impressed by him at some kind of gathering Mm -hmm. so Hugh calls Terry to vent about this Mm -hmm. and Terry is in a hospital like watching her father die and Hugh says it must be a very very hard time for you And it's just ironic. It happens to have coincided with a very hard time for me. (laughs) And and it's it's that false empathy. It's not real. But, you know, the way that people who suck at lying about that kind of thing, you know, it's just so obvious, you know, we're going to bring the conversation back to me. But that arc is so funny about how the PM's wife doesn't like Hugh. There's a moment later where Hugh and Ollie are making fun of Glenn again for not getting laid. And Hugh says, the last time you saw a snatch was, and Ollie quips, basic instinct. And Hugh says, see, that's good. That's the sort of repartee I need with the PM's wife. It's delivered with such a straight face oh, that yeah. it's unbelievably funny. No, it's true. He has so many good little lines that, like, they do such a good job of, like, building joke on joke. There's a funny line, and then he reacts to it in some way. Like, when Glenn says the thing about, um, they've been panned in some paper or something, and then they're trying to start a fight, and, of course, Terry is the only one who's trying to reel them in and make them not do something stupid but they're you know men reacting as if they've been offended and uh so he says this is a bucket of shit if someone throws shit at us we throw shit back at them we start a shit fight we throw so much shit back at them that they can't pick up shit they can't throw shit they can't do shit and then (laughs) Hugh says that's top swear England well done (laughs) so good it's so good The other line I had written down is, you know, Hugh insecure about the PM's wife. The thing that he keeps saying is like, well, we talked about the Euro. They had a discussion about the Euro and the PM's wife wasn't impressed by it. And Hugh says, between the snatch and the Euro, there's some sort of happy medium. (laughs) I love it. Yes. Oh my god. Um, is it the special about the PM's resignation where Glenn has that complete tantrum at the end of the night and starts screaming, I'm a man? <laughs> I don't remember. Do you remember that? But that possibly. was so funny. 
when you think about taking down the patriarchy, or at least making fun of it, the idea that male creatives can't do that, I think is, is unfair, like shouldn't be allowed to do that, because you have this male writer's room and this male cast, but they still came up with, you know, oh, they're gonna be complete dicks to Terry, we're going to highlight how unfairly Nicola is treated in the press, and how horribly emotionally disruptive and weird all these men are like oh, yeah. Glenn having a breakdown and throwing things and screaming I'm a man and you're gonna play it straight that is so funny and such a great way of showing men are so emotional oh yeah are you kidding me this falsehood that people just have stuck in their heads about women being more emotional simply because we're not afraid to cry. Yeah, anger's an emotion too, guys. Dudes! I, just the breakdown yeah. and the childishness and him screaming, I'm a man, like that was not an accident. Oh, yeah. That is that is very much uh, a statement. This show does a wonderful job of sending up the hilarity of the fragility of the male ego. Yes. Better than most shows that I can think of that were written by men. I mean, I guess I guess The Office also comes to mind like the the reluctance to do certain things to own up to mistakes, to admit that you're wrong, to correct your behavior. It's just, it's so weird how men think of that as weakness instead of as strength. In politics, in familial relations, in friendships, there's an episode in one of the Nicola Murray seasons where Ollie has misplaced a memory stick with a lot of statistics about immigration or something like that. And so it's this huge scandal. And then at the very end, just as like a perfect little punchline, Ollie to Glenn reveals that he has found the missing memory stick in the bottom of one of his bags and asks Glenn what to do. And Glenn says, right now, Ollie, Nicola hates us, but if she knew we'd found it, she'd start laughing. Hating is better than laughing, trust me. And like the fact that the missing information that is probably relevant to them doing their fucking government jobs comes second to saving face. Oh God, that's so good. It's so spot on. Did you ever watch the show The Fall? I've never heard of it. I don't typically watch mystery thriller shit, but this one is brilliantly acted by Jamie Dornan and Scully, whose name escapes me at the moment. Oh, you did tell me about this. I forgot yes, that that's what it was it called. It is the most incredibly like feminist motherfucking thing. But there's a speech that Scully makes to a lover actually about when asking a man what makes you afraid of women the answer is I'm afraid they'll laugh at me but when asking a woman what scares you about a man the answer is uh, well I'm afraid he might kill me yeah and just the wild you know it's it's like between the snatch and the euro that's actually a quote attributed to Margaret Atwood that's that's a quote that's been around forever and I remember hearing it in high school and being like whoa that's that okay, like gets you... right to the heart of the difference between existing in this world as a man and as a woman one episode we should talk about because I kind of feel like I've never seen something like this done this well. It's actually the penultimate episode yes. where there finally are going to be some public consequences for the amount of leaking and backstabbing that takes place. It's an hour-long episode where finally all of our, you know, favorite cast are tried for this scandal that takes place. And it's kind of two-part. They're being blamed for someone taking his own life. Maybe help me fill in the blanks on this one. I don't have the notes in front of yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. There was a nurse who was forced out of, I think, public housing or something like that. And so as a result, like as a protest, he was living in a tent and he was kind of voluntarily, well, not fully voluntarily, but voluntarily homeless. And apparently he also had a history of depression. And so he committed suicide 
And so that was Mm. a big scandal. And then his mental health records were leaked. It's a whole, it's a bit complicated. The acting in this one was so remarkable because you've seen this realism, realism, realism. And then suddenly you have this televised trial and you have a bench full of people examining them. And then you have these people that you know who you've been watching behave a certain way, ostensibly in private. I mean, at work, but in private. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they're in a courtroom and they're in a completely different setting. And I've not watched a fuck ton of government political trials in my life, but maybe in the last couple of years, I've watched a few more of them. (laughs) Because again, all roads lead straight to that person. (laughs) But the way that the people asking the questions are acting is so true to the way that you have, you know, senators and lawyers like examining these people in the line of questioning. And everyone's lying you know everyone's lying because everyone's saying well everyone does it everyone does spin well everybody leaks that's what the whole thing's about well everybody leaks can you give us names well i don't remember Mm -hmm. like everybody's telling the same exact lie and giving the same exact information but the way they're doing it is so spot on it was so interesting to see them do that yeah i love i i love that episode do that was that was definitely my favorite episode in the final season um Mm -hmm. that was actually the only episode to be directed by armando iannucci um in the final season yeah yeah he directed the first three seasons all himself and also was part of the writing of them but then in the fourth season he left to go work on veep but yeah he came back to direct that one episode and it's so good it really does look like you are actually watching one of these in real life and like I I loved it so much, but I don't think I laughed very much. I would occasionally titter, but mostly it was just so tense because, oh my God, you're watching these people squirm and they're they're these despicable people that, you know, as you said, you, you've grown to love and to hate and to love to hate over this time. And um, it's the only time that you ever see Malcolm really uncomfortable because he's he's caught. He's, he's a fish on a hook and it's in the rest of the series, he's always, he seems like unapproachably unflappable. You know, it's he doesn't even seem human for so much of it. He'll no. just like show up as if he's like supernatural. He's like a vampire or a genie or something who just suddenly appears and like freaks people out and does his magic and then leaves. And it's like this wonderful person who's just kind of slithering in and out of, of the dealings with the behind the scenes. But in this case, like there's there's just some faces that when he just sees that he's caught and it's like... I don't I don't want to say that I feel bad for him because again this is what should be happening by like the due process of the law etc but mm. but oh god it's fascinating it's the exact kind of uncomfortable that I love to watch in a Britcom mm-hmm. Oy. so good um what else what else um i did want to briefly mention in the loop except that i don't have anything smart to say about it i'll admit that when i watched it i didn't even take any notes i was just like this is a really delightful hour and 45 minutes and i just wanted to mention to our listeners that the 2009 film in the loop served as a sort of spin-off for the series with most of the main cast returning though as different characters the only people to reprise their characters from the show were peter capaldi as malcolm tucker and also paul higgins as jamie mcdonald oh yeah who we also haven't talked about yet but everybody else was playing a, a different person with a different name so it's a little bit weird that it was up for an oscar in the adapted screenplay rather than the original screenplay i guess because they had you know two pre-existing characters but oh i think that i think that it should have won the oscar because it's such a it's such a good script and such a funny movie um y'all should see it if you haven't shout out to the big homie james gandolfini oh yeah his When he and Peter Capaldi have that verbal exchange and they're just threatening each other's lives (laughs) for several minutes. 
it was hot. That's cool. No, I get it. Early on, James Gandolfini calls him English. <laughs> and I kind of went, Ooh. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. And then they have this super sweary, violent exchange. And then as Peter Capaldi's leaving the way, he says, don't you ever call me fucking English again. It's Boom. like, oh my God. Yeah. Oh, that's that's so good. Um, Speaking Jamie of, you McDonald- know. Oh, sorry. No, no, go for it. Talk no, about no, Jamie. No. You finish your thought. I was going to change the subject completely. Well, sorry. I guess so was I. I was going to say, do we want to do a fuck, Mary kill of sorts, except that I'm not sure who we would include, and maybe we should talk about Jamie first. So, yeah, yeah no, say what say, you were Same say. thing. I don't really have much to say about Jamie, except that Jamie is somehow a younger, scarier Malcolm. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why I don't like him as much. I think it's the way that he screams at Robin. Mm. She's kind of stuck in a room with Jamie during the special where the PM resigns, and I don't remember quite why, but she expresses to Malcolm that she's scared, and Malcolm says to her something like, he's never actually killed anyone, or never actually hit anyone, yeah. which is funny, but it's also very much not. But yeah, every time he'd be on screen and he'd be yelling in his fucking accent, I was like, okay, this is just... I am I'm in heaven I mean this is one of the weirdest and worst periods of my life but I'm looking forward to this but yeah then when he's gone he's gone for good maybe that's okay because like we talked about this with super hands when you have a secret weapon sometimes it's best that that person be a secret weapon and not become Kramer and not become accidentally the star of the show. Yeah. One thing on the subject of Jamie, this is a concept that I feel like we've brought up in a lot of other shows that we've discussed, but it I had a name put to it. Weirdly, when I was watching In the Loop the other day, I was renting it from Amazon. And you know how if you pause the movie or if you hover your mouse over the screen, it'll like give you the names of the actors in the scene and sometimes it'll give you like oh fun fact and usually I find that annoying but I happened to pause at one point to go to the bathroom and I noticed that there was a little fun fact about the character of Jamie and how Armando Iannucci talked about something that he called Frasier logic which is how Niles is like Frasier but more so and so Jamie is like Malcolm but more so and that's something that I think I first brought it up when talking about Abfab how Patsy's sister out Patsy's Patsy and so makes her seem sort of more likable and normal in comparison and so I like the the concept of Frasier logic because that's a brilliant tool that's used in so many shows Mm. to sort of contrast and soften the, the main characters a little bit So yeah, extreme Malcolm, who's like less funny and also less effective, less good at what he does, but more violent and scary and sweary. Um, I don't know how we would do a Shag Mary kill because there are so many people who are important and not important at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one way to do it, if we if we just kept it to the first couple of seasons, that would keep the world a lot smaller. I mean, we got it. We got to have Malcolm. We got to have Glenn and Ollie. Those are, I think, three of the people that show up in almost every episode. You know what? We could we could just do them. Okay, that's a good point. They are. Okay. Oh, gosh. Oh, what do I do? Oh, what do you do? Here's here's a... Hmm. Can I, can I guess yours and you can guess mine? Because I'm pretty sure that you would know what mine is, and I think I know what yours is. I think you'd want to marry Malcolm because you want you want to come home to that every night. And you'd probably kill Glenn and fuck Ollie, am I right? You know what? Here's the thing. Yeah, I need that Malcolm Dick every night. Yep, called it. He's an asshole, though. Yeah. So I I need to even it out. So I'm wondering if I then shag Glenn out of, like, a mercy shag, (laughs) and then kill Ollie, who is kind of a budding young asshole? (laughs) Okay. 
because then I I endorse the behavior of one, but I even it out by killing another. That's hilarious. All right. Let's also say, and this this is something that we can argue. There's always going to be a, a counter argument to this, but we talked about this with a different show, and you're going to remember which one it was. Talk to we me. were talking about the difference between the misogynist who doesn't try to hide it and the one who is the nice guy who just props up all the other misogynists it was i think it was mark corrigan versus alan johnson right you are correct so alan johnson being the alpha male misogynist and mark and maybe how that is a bit more dangerous maybe it is maybe it isn't but in the first episode the first time we see malcolm be sweary and shitty to a woman is when he's talking to angela the journalist and he's completely out of line and calls her a hack bitch it's Mm -hmm. very very mean and then he storms away and malcolm's just in the fucking wrong and ollie says he's very nice really he's just had a tough day and that stung a little bit because he is supposed to be the young person with more liberal ideas and he's supposed to be the future of the party essentially and what he's doing is making excuses for someone who is 100 percent wrong that's a good point oh well so perhaps i will be responsible for the wedding ring that appears on malcolm's finger and then disappears (laughs) and then i will give glenn a night off from googling regular legal lovely (sighs) porn and um i will kill ollie okay all right but I assume maybe your first thought was marry Ollie Shag Malcolm kill Glenn. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Nothing against Glenn, but like I also, even though I didn't respond to Malcolm as much as you did, I see, mm. I see the you appeal. Do. I was very no, I I get it. No, I he's he's pretty hot. I feel a fraction of what you're feeling, but that Ooh. fraction is there. <laughs> With Ollie, I can't really justify again. It, it's just pure shallowness. He's eternally youthful and exactly my type on paper, and I feel like because he's young he has the most hope of being changed again i know that i'm so naive and i walk into this every time is like oh but i could change him but seriously i feel like there's the greatest hope for him changing out of the three that is something we often butt up against i'm not saying that it's likely to happen i'm saying that it's it's possible it's impossible that malcolm or glenn could ever be changed you can't you can't teach an old dog new tricks right you can't teach an old dog new personalities i should say it's one thing if they decide to take up the flute during retirement, but like they're not gonna suddenly see the light and become really nice. Right, 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 right. Oh, like so many of the shows that we've discussed here, there was an ill-fated attempt at an American remake. Oh in, my god. In 2007. I didn't watch it. A pilot was shot, but never picked up. But Armando Iannucci described the result as terrible. What he said was that they took out all of the style and they made it very like visually sleek and conventionally shot and they took out all of the improv. And so they basically just took the concept but none of the tone besides talking about like possible american equivalents something that we like to ask ourselves on this podcast is like could an american remake actually work and i think that despite the failure of this particular attempt at an adaptation the answer in this case is yes because i mean veep is a very obvious equivalent that we haven't really talked about because at least in my case i've only seen the first two episodes and that was this week so i don't feel that i can speak on it with any authority honestly it almost feels like a cheat to list it as an equivalent since it's got the same creator but because of that i trust that that same wit and cynicism and 
you know, unapologetic portrayal of despicable, morally bankrupt people in government will translate over with Armando Iannucci at the helm. And, you know, the overwhelming popularity of Veep proves that, yes, Americans are very open to watching shows like this. You know, we just needed a Brit to show us the way. <laughs> anyway, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, combined the fucking election year of all things, all, all the shitty stars are aligning, but despite that, or maybe because of that, I found this to be a strangely comforting form of escapism. It's like you said at the beginning, it's political and apolitical. It's, it's a show about nothing. It's like, it's like political Seinfeld. Ooh. Now I'm just thinking of horny Seinfeld. Oh, God. <laughs> well, for you, this very much was horny Seinfeld, right? Oh, this was horny Seinfeld. <laughs> okay, well, uh, are we are we feeling good? I think we're feeling good. Um, I would like to take this moment. It's going to be a few weeks before this comes out, but I want to give a yeah. big old shout out to our homies Simon and at Lark Elizabeth. I always call her that. Some recent health things going on. Love you both for fighting the good fight. We are thinking of you. Mm -hmm. Search Anglophilia on Facebook. Find us on Instagram. We're on Twitter at Anglo Podcast. You can visit our website, AngloPhiliaPodcast.com. That's also where you can read up on how to support us on Patreon. We are all scrimping and saving because we need food and that is fine um but if you feel like supporting your friendly neighborhood uh, podcast um <laughs> you can everywhere. drop us a few bucks that way or send us an email at anglophiliapodcast at gmail.com also, if you are a new listener who's not yet left us a review on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, subscribe, everything that Stephanie just said, I want to especially emphasize, please email us. We're in our respective apartments on opposite sides of the country. Haven't had any human contact in a long time. Please don't be shy. And we will send you lengthy responses. Please join us next week for our season finale when we will be talking about Phoebe Waller-Bridge's masterpiece, Fleabag. I shudder to think oh my goodness I bet dude. we cry I think I've already watched that show three times this year so I'm happy to do it again it'll be it'll be fab um <sighs> before we sign off I just I, I want to hear you give one more euphemism for how you want to bang Peter Capaldi if you have another one up your sleeve oh my goodness I mean if that man were just like handed to me like a hot meat pie and then slathered in extra sauce and I've just got that meat pie in both hands and there's sauce dripping everywhere and I'm walking down a busy street on my way somewhere but I'm just eating this pie <laughs> that's a lot less succinct than your earlier ones but I'll take it <laughs> well the earlier ones were just the aka's aka's goddess jesus yeah that, i wanted oh. another aka <laughs> i don't know if we're ever gonna top aka the man from glass go and stand over there and take your pants off <laughs> but i could say uh motherfucking peter capaldi aka malcolm tucker aka academy award winner for best giant scottish penis <laughs> <laughs> well uh that's some top filth there stuff well done <laughs>